this morning, um, if I were to give my, the, the message that I'm bringing this morning, if I were to give it a title, I will call it Passing on the Baton. And at the beginning of the year, when we started this series, you know, when we had um, our Vision Sunday, Pastor Andy speaking about passing on the baton, I mean, not sorry, about our best lap yet, um, God dropped this thought in my heart. And I'd been willing Pastor Jeff over the last couple of weeks. I'd been willing for him not to actually say anything about it. Because I was like, I really felt that God's given me this word. And a few Sundays ago, I was out in the hallway and I heard him start saying something. And I was like, what are you doing? That's the word that I think God's given me. Don't say anything. <laughs> and he's out here and he started saying a sentence and then he stopped. And he's not said anything about it again. So I was convinced that, yes, that is it. Um, so it's kind of been brewing for about two and a half months. <laughs> yeah, as Claire said, it's probably a very strong brew by now. Um, but God's given me this word. Me, Camille Romeo. But I also believe that he's giving it to us as a body. So this morning, I pray that our hearts and our ears would be open, not only to the words that I speak, but also to the Spirit of God speaking into each and all of our lives, individually and collectively. Are you ready to hear the word today? Okay. So, our main text is taken from Titus chapter 2. Um, and... In this book of Titus, um, Paul, at the beginning, in chapter 1, he gave Titus um, an assignment. And basically, Paul said to Titus that I want you to set the church in Crete in order. So Paul went away and he left Titus in charge of the church in Crete. He said, listen, this is what I want you to do. And he gave him instructions as to how. He's like, this is what I want. I want you to, you know, put elders in place. But before you put elders in place, I don't just want you to do, put any elder in place. This is the criteria for making them an elder. So he did all of that. And then, you know, he said to him in chapter two, these are the things that I want you to speak about. Once you've put the church in order and you've set things in place for the proper functioning of the church as a body, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to speak about. So let's go from verse one. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, Sound in faith, in love, in peace, sorry, in patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good behavior. 
in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. That's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot. But this Paul says is proper and sound doctrine. He says that we have a responsibility to live according to these things so that no one can speak ill of the word of God. Nobody. When you live like this, no one can say anything ill about God. No one can blaspheme because you're living according to the word of God. See, when Paul was addressing this, there may have been things going on in the church in Crete at that time. So he was like, listen, whatever's going on in here, I need you to talk about these things. These are the things I want you to do. I want you to talk about them because our forefathers would have taught us these things. They would have taught us how to be. So he was saying, listen, let's just carry on what our forefathers would have handed down to us so that we were taught and the things that we were taught were the fundamental truths of our faith. We were taught the traditions that we hold dear. We were taught practical teachings of being a good steward. Something as simple as being true to your word. Something as simple as respecting. Something as simple as actually what it says here, women, love your husbands, love your children. Because what Paul was saying here is that actually, he was basically just reiterating Matthew 28, 19, 20, when God says, listen, go into all the world and preach. But then he didn't just say go into all the world because we have to go to our We have to start in our homes. We have to start in our homes and our immediate surroundings. And then we go into all the world. So Paul was saying, teach our young ones how to be morally sound. Basically, how to be a good person. That these things would not be lost to future generations. And I want us to look at Psalm 145 from verse 4 to 6. It says, One generation shall praise your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. Do you see where the traditions, the tradition of actually teaching our younger ones, you see it started in the Old Testament. This is not just something we're talking about today. Oh, you know, and this is not just something that Paul is saying, I'm going to bring this in place. No, this was something that was started a long time ago. Teaching, because that's how 
a lot of the teachers would have started back then. They were taught how to be these things. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4 and 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them. Teach them to your children. This goes a little bit further. And your grandchildren. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But look in verse 1 of 2 Timothy. It says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is Christ. You see, Timothy, um, Paul had taken Timothy as a son. Timothy was not Paul's biological son. He had taken Timothy as a son and he said, listen, this is what I want you to do, my son. I want you to teach the things that I have taught you. So I've taught you and I've taught you well. Now it's your responsibility to teach. This is where the title of my word comes in. Passing on the baton. Because each generation must teach the following generation in the ways of God. Are you getting that so far? Yeah, you know I like a little bit of interaction. So, yeah. I use the word must because I think it's our responsibility as Christians to do so. Now, we don't want for there to be a future church that are floundering because we didn't teach them well. It's our responsibility as the church to make sure that the future generations have actually got something to hold on to. Yes, they've got the word of God, but they need to have some fundamental things to hold on to, and that's where you and I come in. See, all the way, through the Bible, we see each generation passing the baton on. When you look at Abraham, Abraham passed on to Isaac. Isaac passed on to Jacob. David passed on to Solomon. We've got Moses. He passed on to Joshua. Jesus passed on to his disciples. But there's one changeover, I'm going to call it. There's one changeover that I want us to look at this morning. And that scripture is in 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19 from verse 15. So this is after um, Elijah had done a few things and he had 
called down fire and he had, he had done a few things and he said, um, he was here and he said, listen, God, I've done it. But there's this woman trying to kill me. <laughs> What's going on? I'm ready. Listen, this is not working. He says, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've toned down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone and they seek to, kill, to take my life too. What am I supposed to do? I've done what you've asked me. It's almost like he's saying, listen, God, fix this. Fix this because I did what you said. And in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king of Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of abel Mohala, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu, will kill and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that had not kissed him. So Elisha did that. And from verse 19, he says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran to Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again. For what I have done, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and served him. He arose, he followed Elijah, and he served him. And then the story of that continues on, and we pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 2. And basically, Elijah was kind of preparing, because he knew God had already said to him, listen, I have, I've told you to anoint your successor. So, they were all gathered, and Elijah was preparing to go um, to, you know, just to kind of finishing up a few things. And he said, there were some prophets along there with him, and they were saying to Elisha, do you know, right, that God's going to take Elisha, Elijah? And, he's, and Elisha was saying, yeah, but no. And then Elijah was saying, oh, okay, um, I'm going here. And Elisha was like, well, I'm going with you. And Elijah was like... And Elisha was like, as long as the Lord lives, I'm going with you. And then every time the prophets say to him, actually, do you know that God's going to take Elisha today? He's like, shh, don't say anything. You know, almost as if if I don't say anything, it wouldn't happen. Or maybe Elijah doesn't know, so let's not tell him anything. 
But that kind of kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And he was like, no, I'm going with you. I ain't staying here. I am going with you. And then we pick it up in verse 8. It says, Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I go? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's bold, isn't it? Everybody knew how, you know, what Elijah had done. He's like, well, I want a double portion of you. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a bit bold. Elijah replied, you have done a difficult thing. He said, yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah knew that he had completed the work that God had for him. So he made preparations to go home to heaven. You see, in the first, in first Kings, when we read that story, Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha, but he didn't leave, did he? He didn't leave. He didn't leave because his work had not yet been done. He threw his mantle on Elijah and then preparations. Do you know there's a school of thought? And I looked this up because I was like, nah. But there's a school of thought that there's 23 years in between Elijah throwing his mantle on Elisha and those chariots of fires that took Elijah up into heaven. 23 years. El See, that's what I like. <laughs> 23 years. That tells me that Elisha served Elijah for 23 years before anything happened. So Elisha was there basically interning and apprenticing. In today's language, you know, he was apprenticing. Elijah was mentoring Elisha. So wherever Elijah went, Elisha was there. But Elijah was teaching Elisha. He was teaching him everything that God given him. But he was also teaching him in the ways and the traditions. You see, he wasn't just teaching him biblical stuff. He was also teaching him practical stuff. He was teaching him how to be a good person. He was also teaching him, listen, when you're going and traveling in these far places, you're going to get hungry and you might not have any food. This is what you do. Elisha needed to survive. It wasn't easy to survive. Do you remember that story of Elijah in the, um, in the, with the ravens? Yeah. It ain't easy to survive. 
we've got everything at the tip of our hands because we could click and collect. Can't we? We don't even need to move from home. We don't even have to go out to collect because we got next day delivery, you know? We could buy everything online. <laughs> they didn't have it then. A raven had to bring food. He was teaching him practical ways of living should he find himself in the wilderness. It wasn't an easy road. I'm sure there's a song in there somewhere. Elijah didn't only make preparations to leave. He also made preparations for future generations. Because if he didn't, we wouldn't know about it. And this brings me to my next point. So, how many of us likes looking at the Olympics? I, I was supposed to have a clip, but didn't turn out. <laughs> how many of us look, likes looking at the Olympics? Come on, be honest. Yeah. Nobody likes watching races? Only me? Seriously? Am I the only one that's glued to my TV watching? Like, come on, Romeo, put your hand up. Yeah, you know, somebody needs to agree with me this morning. <laughs> yeah. But you're watching the Olympics or you're watching something like the World Athletics Championship. Right? And I know for me, I get really engrossed in them. I'm, honestly. They'll be screaming in our house. Like, come on. Yeah. We're willing our favorite team to win. And most of the times, come on, it's, it's Britain. Yeah? It's Britain. We want Britain, no matter what sport it is. As long as we hear there's something going on and it's Britain, we're like, come on, England. Yeah. So we want our team to win. And in the relays, we're not just willing them to win. We are willing them to not drop the baton. Isn't it? Yeah? Because once you drop that baton, it's automatic disqualification. Automatic disqualification. So we like, they're glued and like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, he's going to make it, he's going to make it. Like, put the baton in your other hand. Oh, that, maybe that's just me. <laughs> Tell you, I get engrossed in these things, yeah? So I want you to think of two things for me. Think of the worst four by one relay you've ever seen. You know the one where there was a massive fumble? The one where the baton dropped and there was a scramble to pick it up because they're like, I am not losing. Think of that one. And then think of the one where the changeover was so smooth that you did not even realize that it was four different runners on each leg. And you got those two images in your mind, haven't you? Okay. See, I'm pretty sure 
that the difference between those two races were the changeovers. Where you changed from one runner, he's passing the baton onto the other runner to carry on. I'm sure that's where it was. Because guess what? No country or no team is going to put somebody who can't run a 100 meter to run in a four by one. In the first place, had they done that, they wouldn't have qualified for the finals. So it normally is the best of the best of the best that end up representing their country in a four by one. You see, when training, really teams, they put a lot of emphasis on changeovers. They do. I was going to have, I was looking for the Jenga that they use um, at Kids Church, but I couldn't find it. So, Romeo, can I buy a, borrow your microphone? Sorry, Josh. <laughs> can I borrow your microphone, please? I'm just going to do a dep. <laughs> just can't get the help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you see, when training, they put the emphasis on the changeovers because changeovers can become a stumbling block. A changeover point could actually change the whole game. Races are won and lost at the changeovers. A few years ago, there was, um, there was a, I think it was a world championship four by one um, male race. And you had the likes of Osafa, you had um, Usain Bolt, um, they were representing the Jamaican team, and then you had the, the American team. And they all, they all had, like, brilliant runners. When I tell you brilliant runners, it was like, okay. Oh, we were glued because we were like, we want to see who's going to win this one. Everybody, obviously, had eyes on the Jamaican team. But they were saying that there's the toss-up. When you listen to the commentators, there was a toss-up between the American team, the Canadian team, and the British team. Because it was so close that they were like, we have no clue who's going to win this. And they were going really good. Jamaica had been out front anyway. And I don't think anybody was paying attention to Jamaica because they were like, you saying Bolt on the last leg? Yeah, we're done for. So everybody else was looking at, let's see who's going to get second. And the American team looked so good. They were like heading away. They were like, yeah. We were like, come on, England. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And guess what? On the third changeover, disaster. There was this massive fumbling of the American team handing over the baton. That time was lost. Pressure, they didn't drop the baton, but precious time was lost. And they actually didn't even come anywhere near second. Just because there is a massive fumble on the third. They came in quite close after the Jamaican team on the third leg. But that massive fumble 
cost them second or third place. And when you listen to the commentators, they're like, that third leg changeover is what cost them that second place. Races are won and lost at changeovers. So, practically, here's how the baton got, gets passed on. See, one of the main things in passing on a baton is the position of your hand in giving the baton and in receiving the baton. You've got to be in the right position. You've got to be in the right position. You can't just stand. So I've got somebody like blazing coming down from a 100 position. And they're like, and I'm standing here. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared to receive that, am I? Because I am not in the position for receiving. What if... You see somebody running a 100. If you've noticed, no one who runs a 100 is in this, a four by one really, is not in the same position as somebody who's just running a 100. If you're running a 100, you're on your own. You've got no one else to think about. But if you're running a four by one relay, automatically your posture changes because you know you're coming to the end of your leg and you've got this that you've got to pass on. The other thing is that you must maintain your pace as you enter the exchange zone. You see, there's a zone in relays where if I'm waiting on the baton, I can't go out of that zone, whether that way or that way automatic disqualification. So I've got an area where I have to stand. And in that area, I've got to be ready. So you've got to maintain your pace. The person that's coming towards me cannot slow down because you've got to maintain the momentum of your race. See, the outgoing runner starts to run in the exchange zone. You notice you never see the person who's going to receive the baton. They just never stand like this. They start running. Running. That's because both have got to maintain the momentum. They've got to maintain pace. So it's almost as if I am next to you running. Because I have to run the same race that you're running. I have to run at the same pace that you're running. So that... You don't come upon me and I start fumbling because I'm running too slow so I can't maintain that pace. The outgoing runner must match his speed at the cutoff point. If you slow or if you accelerate your speed, you can throw the outgoing runner off and he may, be he may not be able to receive the baton before he reaches the end of the exchange zone. 
So you can't pass the baton to me too soon if I'm out of the exchange zone. And you can't pass the baton too late because I'm out of the exchange zone. Are we getting that? Do you want to come and help me? You can't start running too soon or too late, as this can prove to be a huge mistake. So then you steady your hand, and as the incoming runner, you are responsible for getting the baton to the outgoing runner. This can be difficult to do if your passing hand is moving back and forth, or side to side. Who does that when they're running them? Yeah, you know, you, ca you can't. So you've got to, by the time you get to the last couple of yards, you have got to make sure that this hand is steady. So even if you're running, you know this hand, because most of the times, in a four by one, they use what is called a non-visual pass. So it does not matter where you are. As long as they know you're there, they would use the right hand, especially on the first and the third leg, to pass the baton over to the next person, who then takes it. Didn't need that much, did we? Who takes it in their left hand, gets ready to run, who then to puts that over into their right hand, especially if they're right-handed, and carries on the race. It is called a blind pass or a non-visual pass because you already know where that person is. You keep your hand fixed in front of you once you enter the exchange zone, and the person who is receiving the baton keeps their hand palm up behind them. You put the baton into the outgoing runner's hand. The outgoing runner receives that while he's moving because he's already in position. He's already going at your speed. He's already going at the same pace that you're going at. So you see, relays aren't necessarily run by the fastest. It's won by the team that can successfully navigate and maneuver changeovers. Are you getting that? Okay. So back to Titus. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that as the incoming runner, that is, the ones who are coming to the end of their legs, the ones who are running before, you see, Jerry, can you come here, please? Uh, sorry, nobody knows about this. Can you just come here for me, please? Uh, Carl, can you come, please? Jono, can you come? Uh, Colleen, can I have Abigail, please? Thank you. Ilana? Do you want to come to auntie? Yeah? <laughs> oh, you come. See, come. <laughs> you call one, they all come running. 
now. She's got another friend now. It's okay. We've got one, two, three, four. And five. We've got five generations. None of them are related. But every one of them can pass the baton on to. Do you see that? So it doesn't necessarily just start in your house. Jerry's here, but he's passing the baton to Carl. Carl's passed the baton on to Jono. Jono's gotten through to Abigail. Abigail is loving on my beautiful little baby here. Say hello. <laughs> She's like, no, ain't happening. Thank you. Thank you very much. So Paul is saying that as the outgrowing runner, the one who's coming to the end of his leg, we've got to be sure to pass the baton over into the hand of the new runner well. You're not just passing it over, but you're passing it well. In order that the race can be finished correctly. And that race can be won and finished well. Basically, he's saying... Stand up and teach each generation well. Teach each generation well. We each have so much to pass on and so much to receive that we've got to do it the right way. Just as we've got to pass the physical baton on in a relay, we've got to pass it on in the right way. You see, when one teaches... One listens. When one demonstrates, one takes note. That way, our hearts are in the right place to teach and to learn. So we've got family service today. So we've got a few children around. What I want you to do is to have a look around. Yeah, physically. Look around. Yeah. See, look at their faces. They are the future generation. They are the ones that generations down the road Generations down the road are going to be looking to them. But have we taught these ones well so they can pass the baton on? That's my challenge to us today. What are we teaching? How are we teaching? Elijah mentored Elisha in many ways. Do you have someone that you can pass your knowledge to? Thank you, Hazel. Hazel was my mentor when I was an intern. You see these older women in church? They've got a wealth of knowledge. I remember a few years ago when, we beat, when um, Bridge Mary and us became part. I was like, I learned to knit. 
at the age of what? How old am I now? <laughs> Less, yeah. In my mind, I'm 16. <laughs> but I was like, there is a wealth of knowledge here in these ladies. I'm gonna like dip into that. And they were willing and able to teach things. They were willing and able to teach from their experiences. And I'm so grateful and thankful for that. Because sometimes, sometimes, as some of the younger generation, we think, well, I don't really have much in common. Hey, you're living. We're alive. The fact that we're alive, it means that somebody else has got something that they can pass on to us. And I would be forever grateful that they've got a wealth of experience that they can actually say, listen, we've all got something in common. We've all got something in common. Thank you to Rick and Sue, to Charles and Maureen. Darren, thank you for taking time to help Kerwin with the guitar when he's got time. Thanks, Phil. There's so much. Thank you. But obviously, like I said before, our hearts must be poised and in the right position to receive the baton. Did you get that? Did that just bless your heart this morning? See, that was burning in me. Burning in me. And I'm really grateful that I got to share that today. Why? Because we've got our younger generation in here. So we know we've got to be able to lead them and teach them well. So that future generations, we don't want for there to be a church where everybody comes in, but they've got nothing to pass on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that your word is life. Lord, we pray this morning that the words that rests on our hearts, Lord. Father, that you would take them and they would start germinating and they would grow. Lord, and they would just just burn within our hearts so that we take the commission that you've given to us. We take that seriously, Lord. And we would make sure that our younger ones are taught and that they're taught well. That our young women, Lord would be taught by the older ones, practical things. They would be taught spiritual things. Lord, that they would be taught morally good and sound things. Lord, that our young men would be taught how to be men, how to respect, how to just, Lord, walk in the ways that you've called them to walk. Father, may we be a generational church looking to the future. We pray, Father, that for every person that's in here today, Lord, Father, that we would see ways of cheering the younger generation on 
and that us, the younger generation would look for ways, Lord, of cheering the older generation on and to receive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. If there's anyone that's here for the first time, I'm just going to quickly say a prayer. Um, just, you know, you heard me talking about Jesus, you know, teaching his disciples and leaving them and, and sh- you know, passing the baton on to his disciples. And you might think, oh, okay, I want to meet that man. I want to know who that man is. I want to just, I want to introduce you to him today. I want you to know the man that I know. I want you to know the Jesus that I know. And I'm just going to lead you into a prayer. And you repeat this prayer. And if you say it for the first time, Jesus is faithful. So say this after me, Lord. Thank you for the work that you did on the cross. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for leaving something for me to see that I can walk after you. I pray that my heart will be changed towards you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that something that you've said today for the first time? And if you mean that, you just raise your hand. And we can get you. Thank you, thank you. We see that hand. We're just really, really so thankful, Lord, that you're able to save. You did that 2,000 years ago on Calvary, and you're still doing it today. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. The Bible tells us that when one person says yes, There's great rejoicing in heaven. Come on, would you just give the Lord a clap offering today?